2015. Dave gets on the train at Raffles Place. He's never liked this part of town, which is full of office-shirted people in various stages of unhappiness. In the past, he spent a couple of sleepless nights imagining himself in the CBD, pouring off the train at 7.30am with the rest of the office rats. Later in the day, streaming to Amoy Street Food Centre to do battle over lunch with packets of tissue paper. These possible futures flicker in his head now, and he holds the letter in his hand a little tighter as a talisman against them. It's his letter from the UK visa office, which has finally, with only weeks left before his flight, given him the green light to go. He allows the excitement to settle into his body. He finds he cannot stop shaking his legs, and his face feels sore from the grin that has been stretched out across its width for the last 30 seconds. The past two months since he submitted his application have been a nightmare of anxiety, turning his papers over and over in his head to see if he might have omitted something, or worse, if something had made him unworthy of the visa. He pored over the news to check if there had been any diplomatic spats between Singapore and the UK. After all, it's now four months deep into Singapore's 50th anniversary as a free republic, and Lee Kuan Yew has only been dead a couple of weeks. The international news has seen a spike in reports on the Singapore story, which is necessarily, and worryingly for Dave, an anti-British one at several uncomfortable points. Last week, he was sick in the stomach when The Guardian ran a story about the scrappy former British colony. But Dave's JC seniors, all of whom made it to either Oxford or Cambridge a year or two earlier, have been assuring him on their WhatsApp chat, Rafflesians at Oxbridge, that the agonising visa process is normal. The British Visa Office likes to make us wait. It's a kind of ritual humiliation. Gareth, his overly political senior from the Debate Society, who'd gone up to read English, had said. With your prospects, Dave, they'd be stupid not to let you in. Anyway, that's all sorted now. The letter is in his hands and seems to emanate a kind of warmth. He can focus on the road ahead. Balliol College for PPE, a total dream of a future. He did extraordinarily well at the exams, everyone said so. When he returned to camp with his A-level grades last year, his bunkmates had rallied around, enviously inspecting his result slip like jewellers fondling a rare diamond. Now, in a little over a month, he will present himself to the great minds at Oxford with a score so perfect and unassailable it might eclipse the minor inconvenience of his race. More importantly, he thinks as he surveys the cabin around him and sees the gross assemblage of Singaporeans in shorts and slippers, I'll finally be out of this place. The country has gotten additionally unpleasant this year. The country has gotten additionally unpleasant this year, with the queasy miasma of red dots screaming SG-50 from every possible crevice of the foul, sweating city. 
Nothing has escaped the calls of patriotism. Not buns nor tins of sardines. In a quiet, tucked-away part of his heart that trumpets a little at the thought of the British monarchy, Dave thinks that the past fifty-odd years haven't really been that great for the country. There's no civility, no decorum, no restraint. There's been, instead, a kind of grubby-fingered grab for wealth. He thinks there's something so horribly Chinese about the whole thing that recalls dirty Hong Kong docks and opium-addled degenerates in the 19th century. He is Puranakan, which helps him resolve some of this cognitive dissonance. His family, as far as his amateur research has shown him, became rich from tending to Gambia plantations in the 19th century. This agricultural history, he's always thought, has something in common with the enclosure of British farmlands, which set in motion the gears of the British Industrial Revolution. In school, this has been one of his favourite things to write about in history exams. It made him think about how his family had more in common with the English landed gentry than it did, to be mild, other immigrants. Never mind that, as a result of his paternal grandfather's messy elopement with the Gambia plantation family's daughter, Dave's family now lives in an HDB flat in Jurong, and not a Sixth Avenue bungalow on the family estate. To console himself, he looks into his bag at the fat envelope containing 500 British pounds. He'd exchanged them earlier at the money changer near the visa office, proudly handing the money changer the thousand-dollar note his grand-uncle had given him at Chinese New Year. Over a reunion dinner at grand-uncle's Bukatima estate, Dave's father who was otherwise a fairly fringe character amongst the family, had proudly told his assembled cousins of Dave's recent success. This was met with stony silence over the Ayam Bois-Galois, because all of their kids had done so badly at school that they couldn't even buy the Ivy League places they wanted. The luckier ones had ended up in Australia, or at SMU studying business. One of them even went to jail for peddling marijuana. At midnight, Grand Uncle pressed the Ang Pao into Dave's hand, declaring him the pride of the family, and Dave felt the ancient, genteel lineage pulsing in his blood. He feels it now, in fact, as the train charges west to Jurong. He smiles at the propulsive synchrony between this MRT journey and his life's trajectory. He feels his whole being soaring towards the West, answering its elemental call like some worthier part of him is singing scattered parts back to itself. The fresh smell of the banknotes unexpectedly sours his excitement with thoughts of money. He thinks of the pesky government scholarship that he had to accept in order to get to Oxford. This sends his thoughts crashing back to earth. But five years in public service, he reminds himself, is still better than being a CBD rat. And maybe 
he adds, and this gets him excited again, I can do a master's in London so I can stay away longer. He brushes away thoughts of the bond, which at any rate is four years in the future. But he can't help prickling angrily at the thought of the past two years of military bondage that he's already served, painfully and often humiliatingly. He finds himself staring at a large red circle on the floor of the carriage. It says, SMRT celebrates SG50 in big white letters. Something about the exclamation mark upsets him. Stop shouting at me, he thinks, addressing the thoughts to the country. The train stops at Utram Park, and as the doors open, there's a sudden volley of young people's voices, talking indistinctly over each other, laughing and shrieking. A large group of almost thirty uni kids pours into the train, all of them dressed in identical blue T-shirts. One of them, a guy whose back is turned to Dave, is carrying a massive cloth banner mounted on a bamboo pole. The banner proclaims, in hand-painted letters, Neptune. Dave makes out the back of his T-shirt, which reads, NUS Science Freshman Orientation Camp 2015. Aim for the stars. The banner, Dave notices now, is decorated with glittery cardboard stars. And in the center of it is a badly painted blob he reckons is meant to be the planet Neptune. Dave has heard of freshman orientation camps at the local universities. His seniors who haven't made it abroad all said it was the best time of their lives, describing in florid detail horror nights spent at Old Changi Hospital, going clubbing for the first time, and week-long camps where everyone got to know each other by playing outdoor games and racing through the city on treasure hunts. Listening to his seniors speak, Dave thought it sounded incredibly juvenile. He found the prospect of mandatory group activities terrifying and humiliating, a little like the army. The banner man calls for attention from the group, who readily give it. He pulls out a piece of paper from a pouch slung across his front and haltingly reads, for 50 points, your next challenge, should you dare to accept it, is to do a group cheer in the middle of the MRT. The group groans. Some people in the train start to shift uncomfortably, doing their best to ignore the spectacle. A middle-aged lady gets up and makes herself scarce. Something about the banner man causes Dave's stomach to stir uncomfortably. It's the way he lifts his hand up, clenched into a fist to hold the other freshman's attention. Two other students, both women in shirts that say orientation group leader, are looking admiringly at the bannerman from a little way off, taking photographs with their phones. He hears them say, Wow, he's them and Thula, this freshie. Very good. Neptune, are you ready? The bannerman bellows. With some horror, Dave realizes the group is going to perform something in public. The banner guy has gotten in position, 
hunching his head and shoulders into the centre of the circle of kids around him. He dips one hand into the circle and goes, oh, raising it like a plane taking off until the whole group starts doing an incoherent spoke-sung rendition of We Will Rock You, their feet stomping and shaking the carriage. Dave can't take his eyes off the guy's face, which is now contorted in ecstasy as he chants loudest among the group, We will, we will rock you! Neptune! Rock you! Neptune! He recognizes something in the way his lips curl fleshily over the O's and the raspy, barking manliness of his voice, the way his tongue stumbles and flattens all the consonants. With a start, Dave realizes who it is. Sergeant Melvin, his platoon sergeant from basic military training. The shock of this nearly wins Dave, and he instantly turns away to avoid being seen. It's been almost two years since BMT, but Dave remembers the dark, red expanse of Sergeant Melvin's mouth, which was filthy and vulgar, and spat everything out in broken English. Sergeant Melvin had tormented his platoon with cruelty and relish. All of them had been special intake kids from elite colleges, en route to officer cadet school, and this profile deeply irritated Sergeant Melvin. His theory in life was that people from J.C. were weak, incompetent, and wholly unsuited for military service. He himself was a polygraduate, which he brought up at every opportunity as a matter of great pride. Dave managed to keep a low profile throughout most of BMT, but Sergeant Melvin's irrational wrath came for him one day, unexpectedly, over his failure to properly secure a carabiner. A tumbler of water fell off Dave's field pack during an exercise, and Sergeant Melvin exploded into his face. Hey, idiot! If that was a grenade, you'll be dead now, okay? You not scared to die, at least scared I die, Ken? I thought you raffles one. Very smart. Carabiner also don't know how to do. Must be a whole lot of people do thing for you, right? Now, simple thing you also don't know how to do. You stupid rich kids, all the same one. He remembers the humiliating sting of it. The way it had gone right under his skin. Because being smart really was his entire identity. And here he was, on Pulata Kong, placed against his will in a situation where mastery of very stupid things, the right colour of tape to use, the precise roll on the bottom of your fatigues, the correct expression of contrition when being humiliated by some power adult polygrad, was the only thing that mattered. Now on the train, he watches Melvin in his new civilian incarnation, Skin slightly fairer, hair longer and coloured with copper dye, but in all the essential ways, shouting and swearing like an idiot, totally unchanged. He remembers that greasy face pressed up against his, and how devastating it was to feel himself responding to the sergeant's rage, not with his usual cool intellect, but an ugly, animalistic hatred.
how none of the logical operations he'd mastered in Westminster-style debate, none of the elegant rejoinders he'd haughtily rained down on debaters from lesser schools, how none of that could be used to defend himself against this barrage of uncouth words. And yet, the words of abuse were meaningful. Because what had flared up between him and the sergeant that day was something raw and elemental. Something his teachers at Raffles had driven into all the kids about class and being grateful for the extraordinary opportunities they receive. His teachers' relentless reminders of privilege pointed to some dark truth about the real world. How outside the comfort of school lay mediocre people who resented excellence. And in that moment in BMT, he'd finally come face to face with that reality, the feral ugliness of it. And he was pinned in place, subordinate to it, to this low-class maniac. And, worst of all, he was forbidden to do the one thing he did best— speak his mind. He remembers how, after the dressing down, which had ended with fifty arduous push-ups, he stormed into his bunk and wept, burning in the unnatural justice of being humiliated by someone like Sergeant Melvin. He daydreamed for weeks about how, one day, the sergeant might in some future time appear across a table from him, needing his cooperation for something and how he might throw him into an endless chain of bureaucracy instead, or how he might one day walk into a shop in a mall somewhere, and Sergeant Melvin would be behind the counter, some pathetic lanyard around his neck, desperate for him to buy something. Sometimes he would lead him on and leave without buying anything. Other times he would buy several things, a phone, a tablet, a laptop, a flat-screen TV, just to make a point. In all his daydreams, something, a table, a counter, once even prison bars, always separated Dave and the sergeant. Never again, he resolved in his dreams, would he allow himself to come into such closeness with the snarling face of Singaporean mediocrity. And yet... Here they are again, not face to face, but close enough. Except this time, Dave finds a small nugget of pleasure in his gut, and it starts to grow and grow. Outside the structure of the armed forces, in the light of public judgment, everything is fully exposed. His former tormentors, base Juvenile intellect is on display for everyone to see. He's relegated to his rightful place as some kind of circus performer, stomping the ground and clapping, his voice dull and simian. He's a clown, Dave realizes. Dave relishes the pained expressions on the people on the train, subjected to this unwanted display. Of what? Male virility? The Sergeant Melvin actually think he is cool in this moment. Dave sees a pretty office lady who's sitting right smack in the middle of it all. 
Her eyes flicker over Melvin's face with disgust as he postures and grunts. Her contempt gives Dave a huge sense of satisfaction. The cheer ends with a tribal hoo-ha, and in the stunned pause it leaves behind, all anyone can hear is Dave's laughter. The ferocity of it, wet, snot-nosed, and high-pitched, surprises and horrifies him. But the pleasure in his gut has fully taken over, and that final hoo-ha has sent him ricocheting helplessly into uncontrollable shrieks. Hoo-ha! What the fuck? He finds himself screeching helplessly against his better senses. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? He's laughing so hard now that his stomach begins to cramp. Eventually, his laughter winds down into short, giggling spurts, and he manages to catch his breath, which he takes in great, panting mouthfuls. He's sweating, and there's a stitch in his side. He looks at the group of students and sees through tears that their faces are unhappy and embarrassed. He feels some embarrassment as well at his transgressive, public laughter. He sees Melvin looking at him. His face is flushed with shame. It soon changes to growing recognition. Dave watches him process the social arithmetic in real time, the furrow of his brows, the widening of his eyes, then the sudden jerk of his shoulders, and a dropping of the eyes as the connection is made. To Dave, it looks like the precise moment a small animal, held down by calipers, gives in to overwhelming odds and stops struggling. Dave feels a delicious sense of victory. He thinks of the look on Sergeant Melvin's face and how it rhymes with his cousin's ashen faces at Chinese New Year, wincing under the tangible displeasure of their parents. He thinks of how, with his laughter, he had transmitted an entire philosophy of the world. How, through his laughter, he'd finally allowed the fullness of his inner world to be made known to Melvin, two years after the fact. He knows, seeing the look on Melvin's face, that the fundamental difference between their inner worlds has become clear and legible for all to see. Does Melvin even have the capacity to understand that difference? The grace of one inner world, built on the reading of Dostoevsky and Plato and Baudelaire and even a bit of Derrida, all from the age of fourteen, versus the coarseness of the other. He looks hard at Melvin now, his eyes unwavering, daring him to look. But he doesn't. Melvin quietly hands the banner to a friend, turns his back, and dissolves into the safety of the group, whose chatter rapidly quietens until it becomes a gurgle. The train pulls into another station, and Dave decides he can't handle the intensity of being in that carriage. He hops out. He feels the students watch him exit. As the doors close, he turns back and sees Melvin watching him. 
Melvin's jaw has become clenched with what Dave realizes is indignation. Their eyes lock, and as the train pulls away, Dave smiles and flips Melvin the finger. The train is gone before Dave can see Melvin's reaction. He stands at the platform, waiting for the next train. His heart is pounding. He feels a pleasurable heat to the back of his neck. He's so high on adrenaline, he feels like he could walk through walls, could levitate. He feels, in fact, like his spirit has already detached itself from the earth, is soaring high above the station, high above the streets and the masses of sweaty people. He feels a great unburdening, and the burden, he knows, is this country. He's on a path, he sees now, clear as guiding lights on a landing strip at night, that is already steering him far away from the Sergeant Melvins of the world, far from the CBD rats scrabbling in their offices. His future will be the total absence of his past. In Oxford, he will remake himself. He will be washed clean and take his rightful place amongst other beings of light and grace. He thinks of that scene from Spirited Away, when a giant creature made of sludge and sewage arrives at the baths and is cleaned with a torrent of water. He feels like the tiny, ancient god who rises from the murky water and who flies into the sky in relief, leaving behind a trail of blessings. Dave can hear the next train arriving. He looks back towards the track and sees an SG-50 poster plastered to the glass barrier. Thank you, Singapore! It blares in exclamation. It's an ad for some competition for kids. What are you thankful to Singapore for? Write to us and stand to win attractive prizes. Dave smiles to himself and mulls on his recent victories. The train arrives. He steps into the cool air conditioning and surveys the people around him. More Singaporeans in shorts and slippers. The train charges off towards the west. Dave finds himself pondering the question on the ad. What are you thankful to Singapore for? The sentence structure irritates him but he soon realizes that the answer has been building in him since he got hold of the visa. I'm thankful that I get to leave, and you don't. Satisfied, he tucks the visa letter into his bag and daydreams of the spires of Oxford. <laughs>